You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 42, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Sherry Walling, a clinical psychologist and founder of Zen Founder, where she helps entrepreneurs to tackle the challenges of founding and running companies so that they can be more productive, effective, and happy. She has extensive experience treating PTSD and combat veterans, working with families trapped in family violence, and supporting the mental health needs of physicians and police officers. She is also a yoga teacher and is one of the first professionals to creatively combine yoga with psychotherapy. She launched Zen Founder 10 years after her husband launched his first startup, and she uses her own life experience being the partner of an entrepreneur to inform her work helping other entrepreneurs at Zen Founder. We're extremely pleased to welcome Dr. Sherry Walling to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In today's interview with Dr. Sherry Walling, you'll hear about the many ways in which Dr. Walling, through her organization Zen Founder, helps entrepreneurs to address the many specific challenges that entrepreneurs face. And if you're listening to this and you're an entrepreneur or a freelancer or anyone who doesn't have a regular work schedule, like a nine to five work schedule, you can appreciate all of the benefits of that kind of flexibility. What we don't often acknowledge, I think, are some of the downsides of the flexibility or some of the benefits that a regular work schedule gives, like a lunch break that happens at the same time every day if you're working a nine-to-five job. Now, it doesn't mean you can't get those benefits if you're an entrepreneur. What it means, though, is, as you know from your own experience, I'm sure, if you've ever gone all day without eating lunch, that you're going to have to make a conscious effort to build things like eating, taking a break, starting work, stopping work into your schedule yourself. You're going to have to do these things intentionally. We have spoken before on this podcast about scheduling breaks into your day, but I want to emphasize today that for entrepreneurs, Setting aside time in advance, even putting it specifically on your calendar to stop, take a break, maybe do nothing, at least do nothing work-related, move your body, eat. Uh, It may seem strange to put those into your schedule, but ask yourself how often you fail to do those things and suffer as a result when they're not in your schedule. And think about how Either if you had the experience in the past of having a nine-to-five or scheduled job, how often you did do those things, probably a lot more frequently. So I'd really like to urge you to at least experiment with putting breaks, eating, starting, stopping work to the extent possible, specifically in your schedule, and see how well it works and see how you feel as a result. I hope you find that helpful, and I hope you enjoy the upcoming interview with Dr. Sherry Walling. Hi, Sherry, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hey, Robert. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. 
Oh, same here. I mean, I, I think we could probably talk endlessly about your work focusing on uh, entrepreneurs and how entrepreneurs can stay focused and, and deal with all of the stress and overwork and anxiety that comes along with being an entrepreneur today. And let me just tell you, you know, personally, I, I'm really interested to learn about this more for myself. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur. I uh, started and run my own law firms, uh, run technology for mindfulness. I also come from the high tech world and background in computer science. And, uh, in my law practice, I service high tech companies with entrepreneurs all the time. So I'm, I'm very much immersed in that world. You live in that world. <laughs> I live in it in every way. Uh, and you know, love it. Uh, it's, it's where I want to be, but also I'm very familiar, uh, with all of the stresses of it. In fact, it was the, the major reason I started technology for mindfulness was coming from my own experience of, of loving technology, loving all the benefits of it, but finding myself increasingly challenged by and facing the challenges of how to, uh, you know, not, not be so stressed out and overtaken by it that it would just stop me from functioning. Um, so I wonder if you can, you know, talk a little bit about maybe what got you into this as a focus of yours, you know, sp you spend so much time and energy on it, uh, must be something that, that has some personal, uh, importance to you. Absolutely. So I came into my work, I have a PhD in clinical psychology. So I spent the first half of my career working with people who had really intense jobs, often in the military, sometimes first responders, physicians that worked in the ER. So high stress, high intensity, high levels of trauma. But throughout, like while I was doing that, I was married to my husband, Rob, who is a serial technology founder and has... Um, you know, founded and sold several companies. And so we had all these like tech folks in our living room all the time. <laughs> that, that was our circle of friends. And I kept seeing the overlap between the folks that I worked with in my day job who had high intensity pressure and then the kinds of mental health concerns that a lot of my entrepreneurial tech friends were having. And so eventually it made sense to start doing a couple of conference talks about mental health for entrepreneurs. And that led to some consulting work. And, you know, one thing sort of leads to another when you are having conversations that people are kind of desperate to have. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody loves to talk about mental health, but um, but it's such an important conversation. And so there have been lots of doors that have opened for me to push that conversation forward in the tech and entrepreneurial worlds. When you say that you know, people don't love to have it, I mean, I found that people, everyone recognizes that it's a problem. But people not only don't want to acknowledge it, but because there's such a strong value, positive value in this community attached to working hard, working all the time, getting more done than the person next to you, uh, you know, I think people often are embarrassed to talk about it or feel like it would be a sign of failure to talk about having any negative personal consequence to this. I just had a networking meeting the other day with lawyers and, you know, I was paying attention to when I said hi to people, how many of them either asked me, nope, you staying busy? How busy are you? Or the first topic they wanted to talk about was how busy they're staying. You know, it's a badge of honor. Uh, but it's the metric of your success, right? right? I'm so successful. <laughs> Everyone wants me. Every second of my day that's is spoken right. for. <laughs> But it's mis it's a misplaced metric, right? 
Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's become so ubiquitous that it's hard for people to even fathom what might be um, wrong or unhealthy about that now. I do think it's a little bit of the shadow side of our technological advances. And I am not anti-tech by any means, but I feel like it's really important for us to think carefully about how the inundation of notifications and information about what everyone else is doing, how that shapes how we see ourselves and our lives. And, you know, more recently, we have this really clear data that links things like Facebook use to depression. And so when when you are sitting there at your conference and you're looking at everyone else, it's really easy to play this comparison game in your head. And for a variety of reasons, the demands on your time, the level of business, busyness is, is the metric that people are using to compare to, you know, to other people. And it's, it's definitely a shallow metric. And it's one that is really leading us to believe that we have to work harder and be better and be busier and make it look more fabulous on social media so that we feel like our time and our lives are valuable. You know, you don't just, you don't see a lot of folks sort of sitting around reading books, right? even though that's so good for us. Yeah. So, I mean, this may seem like a silly question, uh, but then what are alternative metrics for people and how, how do you work with people to help encourage them to adopt these other metrics internally, you know, how to, how to internalize them uh, so it becomes part of their own value system? Yeah, I think the comparison game is a killer. Mm -hmm. And when we can begin to be wise and learn to attune to our own selves, we can ask questions like, what work are you doing that's really meaningful to you? What are you really excited about? How are you growing as a lawyer, as a leader, as a founder, as an entrepreneur? Are you happy? Like, how are, how are you enjoying your life? So once we start to ask different questions, we get really different answers. It would be really interesting if you went back to that event and asked, you know, what's super meaningful to you right now? What project are you working on that really gets you up in the morning and helps you to realize that you're making a difference in the, in the world around you? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of lawyers would have a hard time answering that question. Um, the question about happiness, I remember uh, Sharon Salzberg, and she, she's written a lot about mindfulness and happiness and heard her speak yeah. and say that she's found, uh, I think more among men than women, but generally in our culture, people see happiness and valuing happiness as soft or weak somehow <laughs> that she's, you know, she was, uh, always, she's always finding resistance to her talking about happiness because people have an aversion to seeing the seeking of happiness as a, a positive thing, or they, they don't want to be seen as weak for openly valuing their own happiness. So we need some brave voices to change the conversation. <laughs> So t tell me a little bit about how you do this with entrepreneurs where you have such such a dominant val cultural values there of working, being pragmatic, hard-nosed, and we're, we're seeing things like your own happiness and perhaps you know, how meaningful your work is as uh, uh, things that are, you know, maybe would actually be seen as counterproductive to the success of yourself or your business. Well, I... 
you know, I dabble in the science world in the mm -hmm, sense mm -hmm. that a lot of my background and training comes from how do we empirically answer some of these questions. And I think when people come to me, by the time I'm having a conversation with them, we're often talking about something like burnout. Mm -hmm. Certainly not the only thing, but it's, it's a common thing that comes up in my work with entrepreneurs. And one of the drivers of burnout, one of the things that we know very clearly over and over in empirical research is burnout happens when there's a mismatch between what we think is important and how we're spending our days, how we're spending our time. So beginning to help people be reflective about what what's important to you and does that map onto your calendar? Does your schedule reflect what you say you value? And I don't have judgments about what how people answer that question. I mean, some people really, really want to accumulate a pile of money and they feel like that's the best way that they can do good in the world and have a meaningful life. And that's so be it. Like that's, that's a legitimate goal for some folks. So when we when we get really practical about asking, you know, scientifically speaking, you are not going to thrive. You are not going to do your best work. You're not going to be your most creative self. You are not going to get your optimal pro productivity if you spend your wheels turning on things that don't matter to you. Mm -hmm. To you. has to be mm -hmm. personal. So that's one of those entree points that I think feels very logical. And there's a lot of research behind that, that line of inquiry. Um, and I think it it helps people realize, oh, if I'm really going to optimize, right? You want to yes. use that language. How do you optimize? How do you be most productive? Your best version. Um, we have to. We have to really look at the match between what's important and how you spend your time. So, how do you maybe you can give some examples of how you help people with that? Because I, I can imagine there's a challenge in helping people steer towards using more of their time for what's valuable to them. And the demands that people feel are being placed on them, whether real or not, to do other things that are externally valuable, let's say. So, yeah, like if we were to to even like look at your schedule, Robert, if we went through kind of your Google Calendar or whatever it is you use. And so I, we would sit down together and look at it and say, like, what is this thing you're doing? What's this benefit you're going to? Or what's this meeting you're in? Why are you in this meeting? Why are you on the board of that company? Why are you doing that? And the conversation becomes, well, I'm doing this because, you know, it looks really good for my firm or it, really look, it helps promote this. And we ask the question, is the benefit worth the cost to you? And we also ask about emotional cost. Mm -hmm. Is it stressful? Is it time consuming? Is it this expectation that you feel obligated to do, but yet brings no brings you no joy? Yeah, and I'm wondering when it comes to really evaluating that cost, uh, can you talk a little bit about the the health costs of stress and anxiety? I mean, I think it's pretty common for people to be aware that they're stressed and know that it's not good, but perhaps underestimate just how significant the health consequences are to themselves. We, we undervalue it. Yeah, we really do. We <laughs> really do. So especially with something like prolonged chronic stress, so living in an elevated level of stress for weeks, months, years at a time, or when you move into a burnout phase, um, we see these pretty significant neurological changes in how the brain is functioning. So I'm sure most listeners are familiar with the amygdala, the part of the brain that generally is responsible for negative emotion or generating fear response. 
So when we live in chronic stress, that part of the brain becomes very active. And what that does when it's overly active is it impairs the modulation in the medial prefrontal cortex. So basically, we have this frontal lobe, right? This part of our brain that helps us calm down. It's the part of us that helps us talk to ourselves. Mm. So when that becomes impaired, that, that lizard brain, that stress brain, that amygdala takes over and the connections between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex literally begin to wear and tear. The brain starts breaking down and we enter this cycle and in which we're increasingly impaired in our ability to calm ourselves down or talk to ourselves in a meaningful way because we're we're saturated in in sort of stress hormones and an overactive amygdala. So all that to say, like our brains really change, which can impair memory. It can impair emotion regulation. Certainly we see a link between prolonged stress and heart disease. The science is really robust when we look at the negative consequences of stress on the body. And would it be fair to say then that if your brain is changing in these ways as a result of prolonged stress, that you would then be less able to deal with, let's say, even a lower level of stress um, in the future than you would have in the past because your brain is now impaired? I mean, in other words, that less stressful events will stress you out more, to put it, you know, colloquially, as a result of these changes in your brain. Yes, Mart, yes and no. So we do see the brain having some capacity to reset once that stress is decreased. So it's not it's not written in concrete that you are like forever messed up if you mm-hmm. if you reach this level of stress. So certainly mindfulness practice is a deep part of being able to calm and reset those neurological processes. However, in the absence of an intentional shift in the level of stress that someone is exposed to, then yes, it's sort of like your stress cup is full. Mm-hmm. And the more stress that you pour into it, there's there's more overflow. It's sort of leaking out on the edges. And that's when you become irritable or aggressive or start trying to modulate your inner experience with alcohol, with drugs, with you know other kinds of compulsive behaviors that, that soothe because your inner capacity for soothing has broken down to such a point that it's no longer effective. Hmm. And you, in, beyond just uh, this prolonged stress, you use the term burnout a few times. I know colloquially what that term means, and I think most people would, but it sounds like you're using it uh, maybe in a clinical way to refer to something that goes beyond even just the uh, prolonged stress. What do you mean by burnout? I wonder if you could give people some ex- maybe um, flags or, or signs of burnout, because I, I, I suspect there are probably people who are experiencing burnout who aren't even aware of it. Yeah. So burnout is a concept that uh, Christina Maslach, who's a psychologist at UC Berkeley, has developed and researched over the last 35 to 40 years. And it's it's now such a well-defined construct that it's it's in the ICD-10, the International Classification of Disorders, mm. um, which means it's it's an official term. Like it's it's a real deal. It, yeah. The World Health Organization has identified burnt. <laughs> it's called burnout, a state of vital exhaustion. Um, 
And what's interesting about burnout is it is almost always driven by occupational stress. So the research on burnout is from caregivers, it's from physicians, it's from psychologists, and also from business owners and entrepreneurs. And so what burnout looks like, there really are kind of three symptom clusters, if you will. One, the first one is physical and emotional exhaustion. And this is that sense of like getting up in the morning having eight, nine hours of sleep, but still feeling exhausted, like you're dragging, like you don't have spark, like you don't have the energy that you once had. Um, You also see folks who are experiencing physical and emotional exhaustion really struggle to get well after a cold or a flu, like the immune system has broken down because the body is tired. So that's the first Um, sort of set of symptoms that you might see. The second one is cynicism and detachment uh, related to one's work. So I see this come out a lot um, with my entrepreneur clients in the way that they interact with key members of their staff or the way that they interact with their customers. So rather than feeling like, oh, I'm I'm super excited to be on this team or I really want to support my customers' needs, there's a sense in which, oh my gosh, these people, it's, it's never enough for them. Um, it begins to feel very kind of edgy, biting, cynical, and like you you don't have the energy to care mm-hmm. maybe the way that you once did. So the last piece is a sense of ineffectiveness and lack of accomplishment. And this is when really despite any objective data, you feel that you are pushing the boulder up the hill, that nothing important is getting done, that your work doesn't have value, that you are ineffective, you're spinning your wheels. So it's it's a pretty like crummy way to feel. You're exhausted, mm-hmm. you're cynical, mm-hmm. you're detached, and you feel like your your work is crap. You're not getting anything meaningful accomplished. And some of the larger studies estimate there's about 30% of workers in adult workers in the US and another study had a similar finding in the UK are struggling with burnout related to their job tasks. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The things you described, as serious as they are, uh, sounds to me like it just describes what many lawyers are that I know after practicing for 15 or 20 years. And you know, it's a good reminder that the fact that something is really common or normal in that sense uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's healthy. Right. It certainly runs higher in some professions than others. And I, I do think that lawyers operate from an exceptionally high place of burnout. Like it is probably more the norm than not. But yeah, but I absolutely agree with you. Just because something happens a lot doesn't mean that we should accept it as the the reality of how we have to live. Um, especially because this way of being towards your work is really unpleasant. Yeah, and you know, I, I know amongst entrepreneurs too, it it can uh, I, I can imagine that it may be hard for people to recognize the unhealthy aspect of it when they see this not just in themselves, but in so many other people around them, it'd be easy to believe, oh, there's nothing wrong with this, uh, as uncomfortable as it may feel, because how could there be something wrong with it if so many people around me, my peers and superiors and customers even perhaps, are 
experiencing a lot of the same things. I mean, it, it does remind me of one of the benefits of mindfulness is one of the reasons we try to practice it is to see things for what they are, right? See the reality that's act, you're actually experiencing internally and outside of you uh, directly for what it is without this kind of filter or, or judgment about it. Um, yeah, I, I want to talk about your book, which I know is is very directly related to this. I mean, this is a very serious topic. I love the title of your book, which does put a, a bit of a, a lighthearted spin on it, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. Uh, so, but it's, I will uh, say that my, my 12-year-old son suggested that okay. title, and I was like, where did you hear that language? And also, ooh, that's a good title. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, we have to be able to to laugh a bit at this stuff, but uh, maybe because it is so challenging to deal with. But um, you know, I can understand what motivated you to to write the book, but um, why why that title specifically? And you know, what's what's the the what it what would an entrepreneur who reads this book get out of it fundamentally? Yeah. So we did want to have a playful title because I think it, you know, it's not like the entrepreneur's guidebook to depression sort of sounds right. like, oh, I don't want to be caught reading that on the plane. Um, yes. But something that feels a little more playful, feels a little more accessible. And uh, my husband is a second author and we, we really tried to tell as many stories as we could about our life, the lives of the entrepreneurs that we are in contact with to make it feel very much like, hey, this is really kind of the real deal for all of us. Um, so I... I tend to run a little philosophical and my mm -hmm. husband is super practical. So that <laughs> helps our balance in the book. And you'll see that trend. So the first chapter is really this sort of existential philosophy of what it feels like to be an entrepreneur, to, to seek freedom, to seek creativity, and to be someone who wants to make this unique creation in the world, yet to realize that, wow, the opposite of your great freedom that you have is this deep responsibility. Most of the entrepreneurs that I know thought, oh, it's going to be great. Like I'm going to be able to work from home. I can work when I want. I can choose my hours only to realize that like they can choose any 20 hours in the day that they wish to work <laughs> to keep up with what their expectations are. So um, again, there's just kind of some playfulness about this is great. It's great to be an entrepreneur and to to make your own way in the world, but there's some really significant mental health challenges that go along with it. Yeah, I've heard it said that uh, when you run your own business, you work for an insane person. Yes. So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, and there is some data to suggest some higher levels of depression, ADHD, bipolar disorder among entrepreneurs than among the general population. Um, that's Michael Freeman's work at UC San Francisco. And he, the, the rates are pretty high. So I think helping people draw attention to the fact that whether it is because someone has ADHD and, and maybe, you know, they can't sit still in their cubicle. So they go out and create a website and create a business. It may be a, a lovely adaptation to having a mental health challenge, um, but in any event, we have to sort of be honest about the fact that many, many of of the entrepreneurial community are kind of working through some mental health challenges and are finding often great ways to be adaptive, but also experiencing some of the, the downsides of that. So that's another sort of focus of one of our chapters. That's great. And, you know, here's 
something I know about myself and have experienced as a challenge and a tension maybe of the of a similar kind to what you're talking about, which is the tension between being um, highly individualistic and wanting to work really closely with other people on a team. <laughs> yes. You are awesome on a team so long as you're in charge. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and a lot of entrepreneurs, what here's the positive side. They have a really powerful, unique, creative vision, uh, which comes from themselves as an individual person. Uh, I mean, it's rare. You do sometimes have a founding team of two people maybe who will really work mm -hmm. very well together. But I don't know, in my experience, that's rare. Um, very often highly individualistic people, but they want to help the world. They want to do that by growing a business with a team of people who are all satisfied by their work and are collaborating with each other. And, you know, as I said, I know with myself, that's been a challenge uh, to try to um, integrate both of those things together. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and the extent to which it can cause stress, but also perhaps, you know, result in some really positive outcomes for everybody involved when it's resolved well. Yeah, I think entrepreneurs may be higher on that scale of does not play well with others. <laughs> um, in the sense that, again, you have to be pretty pretty darn driven and pretty sure of your own inner abilities in order to step off the trodden path. And that can lead to a lot of loneliness. It can lead to some interpersonal dysfunction. But it's also, I think, incredibly satisfying for people when they can find that right team that can help support them and create this community of people who are all working toward a shared goal. I mean, I, I feel like there's probably nothing more satisfying for entrepreneurs than to see that come into be and be able to support other people through, you know, enacting their plans, I guess. Let's turn a little bit to a related topic that you focused on, which is relationships outside of the company. And I think this relates not just to entrepreneurs, but to anybody. I know you and your husband just launched a course called the Date Night Bootcamp, you know, which is about personal relationships. I'm sure there's an angle of it that relates particularly to entrepreneurs, even though it can it's something that anybody can benefit from. Tell tell us a little bit about this and you know what motivated you to to launch the course and what's unique about it. I think it was like six years ago I read this um scientific paper in a journal that talked about the level of anxiety in entrepreneurs. And it was a study in Denmark and they looked at the percentage of entrepreneurs as opposed to the general population who were being prescribed medication for anxiety, and it was significantly higher in the entrepreneurs. And then they had this little section at the end of the paper that was like, it was significantly higher in the entrepreneurs and in their significant others. Mm -hmm. So I was like, what? <laughs> I want to <laughs> read more about that. Because <laughs> at this point, of course, I'm the wife of a, a serial founder, and I'm living this roller coaster alongside of him. Um, and I think that that is really true that the burden of the ups and downs of running your own business is very much shared with your significant other, with your spouse, with your partner, whether you intend that or not, whether they work in the business with you or not. Um, it, it can feel very much like 
your your entrepreneurial spouse has a has a lover on the side that they're thinking about <laughs> all the time that they are obsessing over. They wake up in the morning thinking, "Ooh, I wonder what would happen if I moved that button on my homepage." Like it's just you're like, "Hello. Have you greeted me today?" <laughs> so I think there are some unique challenges to um relationships with entrepreneurs and their companies <laughs> because it it is so uniquely consuming. Um and and so yeah, we put together this date night course because we wanted to help people have different kinds of conversations than, hey, this is what's going on with my, you know, my board meeting tomorrow and hey, who's picking up the kids on Wednesday? Those are, you know, obviously important conversations to have, but in terms of deep connection where you are able to thrive in your relationship with your significant other in the middle of the ups and downs, the roller coaster of entrepreneurship, we wanted to sort of speak uniquely to that. So that was that's what we're going for, at least. Yeah, I wonder if you can give people a flavor of what what it is about the date night that you recommend or the suggestions you give that are unique to entrepreneurs. Lots of people do go on date nights or schedule them at least. <laughs> Try. <laughs> Try. Uh, you know, what? what is it about an entrepreneurial date night or what you call date night boot camp, you know, that makes it special, that's particularly helpful to entrepreneurs and their significant others? Yeah. So each... Each date goes along. We have like a 15 minute video where we introduce a topic um, that you then discuss on your date. So there's the intro video and then a conversation guide that helps ask questions. And the topics that we address aren't super different than you would get if you were to, you know, go to marital therapy. There's a conversation about shared values. There's a conversation about goal setting. There's a conversation about sex. There's one about arguing. Um, so those are sort of classic standard, hey, you want to work on your relationship, at least sort of think about these topics. But what we've attempted to do throughout the videos and throughout the material is, is integrate that assumption that underlying just the normal ups and downs of a romantic intimate relationship also goes this extra level of relationship with the business. So when we talk about, you know, sex per se, you, you think about what are the stressors that get in the way of sexual interest or of being able to sort of feel comfortable, you know, talking about how a business might be reshaping your sex life and mm -hmm. that, you know, doesn't sound that fun, but it, it <laughs> yeah. can be part of the reality. And so to be able to, to put words to that can be really powerful in a couple. Oh, that's great. Um, I wonder if you can tell people where they can find the course, they can find the book, find out more about you and, uh, you know, about how, in addition to finding these materials from you, um, how people can get in touch with you uh, and, you know, and how you work with people uh, directly. Yeah, so I I get to do a lot of different things. I'm entrepreneurial in that way as well. But I um I love working one on one with entrepreneurs and with their families, with their teams. So um I can be found at Zen Founder Z E N F O U N D R. That is also the name of my podcast where I address all issues related to mental health among the entrepreneurial crew. So zenfounder.com is also where the date night course is located. It's zenfounder.com slash date night. You can find a link to the book there as well. The book is available on Amazon. So definitely don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I love 
providing resources, even if I'm not the right resource, I can help connect people. People contact me all the time and say, hey, I think I might need to see a therapist. What do I do? And uh, I'm happy to help people get what they need so that they can do the work that they want to do in the world. Well, that's fantastic. No, I really I appreciate that you don't just write about all of this, uh, but you you live it, you know, in your own life uh, with your husband, and that you have a, a clinical psychology practice where you help people directly. Uh, it seems like you you are living this in in all different ways, and I know that uh, the fact that you're living it helps you bring that personal experience to the the people that you counsel. Yeah, I have deep empathy and I feel like I often say things like, oh, I know this is so hard <laughs> and, I, and I feel it, right? 100%. I feel it for myself and my family and the people I work with. Yeah. And I can tell that, you know, as many of the problems of entrepreneurship that we've been talking about and you've been acknowledging, it's clear that you get all of the, the positives of entrepreneurship, what draws people to it. Uh, why people are so passionate about it, and all of the really great, positive, socially beneficial motivations that people have for becoming entrepreneurs. I mean, I was saying a bit tongue-in-cheek about how individualistic entrepreneurs are, including myself, but I know that the vast majority of entrepreneurs are passionate about their business because they believe that if it's successful, it can help many people, if not the world generally, you know, that's the altruistic motivation that's behind so many entrepreneurs and what drives them to work so hard. And it is a wonderful life. I mean, it is a wonderful privilege to be able to construct your days the way that you want to choose what you work on, to choose to give your passion to certain projects or not. And I think entrepreneurship creates the opportunity of a home for people who have spent the first 20 years of their lives feeling like, oh, I don't really fit in school or, oh, my brain works too fast. Oh, they told me to sit down or I don't want to do the project they wanted me to do. I, I mean, I think entrepreneurship is is really a mental health godsend to many, many, many people. So I feel really privileged that I get to be part of that process for folks and help them figure out how to make it sustainable and healthy and fun and meaningful. That's really, really great way of putting it, you know, helping people to to get the best of, of both worlds out of the amazing work that they're doing. Uh, I've really had a good time talking with you uh, about all of your work with entrepreneurs and uh, being focused, productive, happy, healthy, and mindful. Uh, thanks so much for being on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And it was lovely to have this conversation with you. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Dr. Sherry Walling, a psychologist and the founder of Zen Founder, which helps entrepreneurs to address the burnout, anxiety, depression, and loneliness that is so common among entrepreneurs. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. And find out about our Tap into Mindfulness course for helping you to take control of your smartphone 
at bit.ly slash TFM meditation. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with guest Vincent Horn, the co-founder of Buddhist Geeks.